Welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts. There you can also join the conversation and read my serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story. Hi guys, it's Kate here, and I'm bringing you episode 43 today of The Matterhorn, and this is called Nothingness in Fiction, or How to Layer Fiction with Absences and Negative Space. Um, and I'll be talking about Vienna in the Spaces and Places section, um, which um, may sound like a surprise, um, especially if you if you haven't read the, the fiction installment this past weekend. But I'm looking at um, Vienna as a kind of elsewhere contained within this text that's about Hong Kong. So we'll kind of look at Vienna itself and also why you might want to include um, other places in, within um, a different setting that you've chosen. Um, and so today's topic, um, I have a lot of um, ideas about. I'd love to hear your ideas about it. I'm going to do, I'm not really going to be grounding us in much theory besides a, a couple of um, mentions of research and more looking at the text themselves and just kind of philosophizing, thinking about that concept. Um, and I guess, you know, last week it was quite text heavy. So this is going to be maybe a little bit more conversational with some short quotes and examples to consider that we can always go deeper with um, in the future. And yeah, so I'd, I mean, I'd love to hear which which direction you might want to spend a little more time on. Um, this is this recording is coming to you on Boxing Day. So I hope you are having a nice holiday if you have time off or you're with family, however you might celebrate, whether you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or the winter solstice or New Year's, um, you know, all these things. I hope that you're having at least a little bit of a break or a change or a reflection. Um, I've mentioned before, I really, I really enjoy the darkness of winter. So the solstice for me, um, although it was last week when you hear this, um, is is a really welcome day. I mean, especially if you're somewhere with snow, because you all you get the the at once the brightness and the darkness. You get the moon's reflection off the snow, which is just really beautiful. So, a um, little bit of digression to say that um, after this week, I'll have a couple weeks break, and then I'll come back to you with what's next. Now, I'm recording this a couple months. Beforehand, I like to chunk my work um, when I'm diving into the ideas and the research, um, and that way it also gives me more space in between to um, write my fiction, which I find takes a different kind of um, a different kind of energy, I guess, or a different kind of space. So um, that's part of the reason I do it, and I just get excited about the ideas I want to share. So I just I kind of keep going, and then um, I take a pause in between. So uh, I'll be seeing how how people respond to this and what they think about it, and the direction I'm going on in my work at that point. Um, it this novel that I'm sharing with you is quite long, so. Um, I'm considering maybe bringing you the ebook after this part um, instead because it feels 
like a bit of a slog to go through probably be about a year um, of these sections and podcasts, but there's a few other ways I'm thinking about doing it. So at this point, um, I may have already shared with you some of that in the in the chat through Substack. Um, and if not, I will be doing so in the next couple of weeks. So just stay tuned. I have a lot of ideas brewing and I just really love, I've started to share some of the the podcasts and I'm really enjoying the conversations around it as well as hearing about a lot of your work. Um, and, you know, this week again in the, we're still going to have the let's do this um, on Thursday and I'd love to hear kind of where you're at with your work and maybe what kind of guidance or questions or considerations um, you'd like in that section of this newsletter as well, newsletter, podcast, publication, all these things. Okay, so let's go back to the topic today. Um, and I, the bullet points I share with you in the post today aren't exactly in order. I try to give you kind of an order of what's going to be talked about in the podcast because it's a little bit longer. You can kind of jump ahead, but um it's I'm I'm talking maybe a little bit more circular in terms of these ideas. So I'll just I'll just introduce this. I would call it a lexicon of ideas. That's so just this kind of list of words that kind of come from the text I've been looking at and help us to think about the ideas. So um, this idea of nothingness and even negation. I mean, these are two different things. Um, but how this might enter the text, um, nobodies or people seen as nobodies by elsewhere or people who embrace this kind of nobody identity as well as just the word itself in text. Um, ideas of the invisible, of course, we'll look at invisible man, um, you know, invisible as as kind of a pharmacon, which we talked about a couple weeks back, as, as something that can be powerful, you know, like a superpower. You want to have an invisible cape maybe to be able to um, hide and, you know, do things in secret. Or invisible as um, a really also a negative term is people who are not not seen and not um, not validated maybe for a variety of reasons. Um, looking at gaps and these gaps might be in the narration itself. Um, so almost like in the way that uh, text can create a, a montage of, um, of, of narration and, and, and language. And, you know, we looked at this with film with the cinematic a while back that you could kind of echo um, cinema in the way that you might leave gaps between scenes, for example. Um, and then this idea of negative space, or sometimes called white space, which is a term that we use in visual art. And this is a term that really um, made me start thinking about the idea of nothingness in, um, in literature, in written, in written art. So then there's the silence and the unsaid. There's non-places and even non-hours, um, which that I have that in quotes on the post because the non-hours come from a section of a PK Lung poem that I share before the start of um, part one of this novel. And I won't really go into non-places and non-hours today because there actually is quite a lot of academic discourse around those ideas, especially non-places, um, as these kind of globalized spaces, especially airports, um, but it can be other places as well, that kind of lack 
culture in a way you could say um they're affected by neoliberalism for example so um if that's a topic that interests you maybe we can do a separate podcast on simply on non-places i find it quite an interesting topic actually especially in relation to hong kong um and then as i said for spaces and places we'll be looking at vienna so i guess i i first started thinking about this concept really explicitly um, at university when I was simultaneously learning about negative space in my art history classes and studying Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison um, in a literature class. And I mean, this is just, I, I just love how um, at a well, any, any university, but especially with liberal arts, um, and okay, literature and art might seem quite closely related, but this would happen to me with um, also, say, science classes in relation to literature class, for example. You you start to get these these synergistic um, ideas. You, you engage in synergistic thinking where something new comes out of that space um, between what you're learning in one area and the other or... Um, the ideas that come from the text that you read. So, you know, this this idea of negative space in visual arts, you can think of it as, if, just if you're not familiar with um, Rubens' vase, for example, is the most um, probably famous or produced um, example in terms of thinking about this, where it's, it's a vase, but we see also people's profiles in the sides of the vase. So, you know, the, there's also that it's kind of a, a trick question, or it's also a trompe l'oeil, like, is it a picture of two people in profile, or is it a picture of a vase, right? And so it just demonstrates um, the the awareness of that negative space, you know, the lines that create the space that's not the subject matter, if we're just thinking about a painting or a drawing for the moment, just to make it um, just to make it 2D and a little bit easier to kind of imagine and understand first. When we consider that negative space, it's about thinking of compositional balance. Um, and, you know, if you want to shift that balance, um, you know, why are you doing it? It just creates this kind of awareness of that compositional balance. It's about the geometric lines that are created from the negative space. Um, and it can also be if we if we think more and and this is something that you can look at in um, say like a still life, for example, because you know although the subject may be important and may have symbolic significance, for example, you know an apple can have a lot of significance symbolically, for example. Um, but a lot of times we're we're looking at it in a more aesthetic nature and considering you know the lines themselves, um, the shading the you know the light that's that's entering that space perhaps the color if it's in color um and so you know that's a really great way to study whether you're doing the the drawing or the painting yourself or you're looking at these still lives um online or in a museum or wherever it is it's it's also a great um lesson for students of any age to to investigate that negative space in different ways um, but if we bring it to the 3D in visual arts, it's also about that emptiness in the space of sculpture. And I remember at the time I was um, taking an Italian Renaissance art class and learning about the way that um, some of the great marble sculptors would 
would imagine that finished product before they started chipping away at the marble and the way that they had to use um, the negative space to create their subject. So, you know, kind of making it emerge from that negative space. And I think there's some examples of just a really interesting aesthetic, even if you just take away the subject for a moment, which you may or may not like, um, the those kind of spaces in between the marble, it can be other kinds of, of um, sculpture as well, but it creates something really interesting. And I, I just love Antonia Canova's Cupid and Psyche for this. Um, you know, if you if you go to the to the Louvre and you you see this sculpture and you you move around the sculpture, you know it looks different from all the angles, and you can just see like the space that's moving between the figures. It gives it a kind of lightness, a humanness, a movement, um, and it creates this geometry of its own. It's it's just kind of a magical experience, and I'll I'll share with you this. Um, an image that um, we are allowed to share freely with you. So I'll put that in the in the post for you that you can take a look at. Um, and so at the at the same time, um, this negative space can be likened to say metaphorically um, the negative space of one's plot structure or life experience, if you think of it in that way, kind of the things that aren't the subject, that aren't at the forefront, that maybe we're not aware of ourselves or our distant memory or in terms of, um, you know, a, a narrative. It's not what's immediately recognizable or doesn't seem to be the main conflict or plot line or, or subject matter in some way. And there's quite an interesting book actually called Negative Space um, by Lily Danziger. And it's, it's a memoir, but it's also, it goes into novel and I've seen it in the fiction shelves. I think when I bought the book, it was on the fiction shelves, even though it's also called a memoir because the author tells us um, right at the beginning that she is, she's kind of filling in the gaps or these spaces, um, this negative space um, with some of her own ideas. And um, I'll just read you part of this author's note at the beginning so you have an idea of how some authors play with this idea of negative space. So she writes, to write this book, I relied on my own memory where applicable, as well as my father's notebooks and letters, my mother's journals, and over two dozen interviews. The stories I collected through these interviews often contradicted each other and sometimes themselves. I did my best to find something like the truth in the in-between spaces where all of these various sources overlapped. For a long time, I struggled with presumptiveness of telling someone else's life story without their input, because this is about her parents, um, especially someone as proud and opinionated as my father. But the more I saw how rarely two people remembered the same event in the same way, the more I realized that even if I could have interviewed my father directly, I still wouldn't have gotten the truth, whatever that may even, even means. So this story is a truth, one of many. And I'll come back to this idea of finding the nuances of truth in these gaps that we're going to talk about today all of, of all different kinds all these different ways of looking at negative space but I just thought it was a really interesting reflection on the way that she wrote this story um, I did a piece on memory a couple months back which I'll link in for you guys and specifically um, what memory has to do with novel writing so with fiction um, 
And I think that this book, you know, could be added to the mix for a lot of different reasons. But um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the way that she's looking at um, the subjects of um, art and creating art, um, of addiction, of memory itself within the text and of childhood um, and the nurturing um, that takes place in one's life. All of these areas are enhanced by the use of this negative space. And, you know, I think that's why she calls, um, she calls the entire story that um, because the kind of the answers are in the negative space. And, you know, this is where you can start to think about it as liminal space, which we kind of keep coming back to as well. That kind of in between seems to have the answers for her. Okay, so as I mentioned, um, at the time of first explicitly learning about negative space, I was also reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Um, And, you know, the title itself tells us that we're, we're looking at a man who um, is considered invisible in some ways in society. Um, and this is because of his race. He's black in America and he talks about what that means to him. Um, but it also has to do with some other areas of the story. And uh, I think that, you know, this, this story is quite poignant in, in so many ways. I just love the way Ellison writes. It's kind of musical. And I think he creates these kind of silences, within the rhythm of his story as well that partially tell the story but his opening um is is really just beautiful and recognizable and tells us a little bit about this idea of the invisibility so i'm just going to read you that short part now um it says i am an invisible man no i am not a spook like those who haunted edgar Allan poe nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am, a, I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus shows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Nor is my invisibility exactly a matter of a biochemical accident to my epidermis. That invisibility to which I refer occurs because of a peculiar disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come in contact, a matter of the construction of their inner eyes, those eyes with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality. So it's worth going on, but as I as I said, I'm not going to... Um, I'm going to try to use more of this time for for speaking about the text today. And, you know, part of what he's looking at here is the is the difference between reality and perception, um, which is important. And, you know, it has to do with individuals, but also the way that society functions and the way that it um, it creates collective viewpoints. Right. He's also he's also positing this against um, a kind of Hollywood narrative, as well as you know he mentions Edgar Allan Poe. So within and exterior to um, the history of American literature, because Poe is such a central key figure to American literature. Um, so you know, there's a ton going on here. You know, it's it's the imagination. It's about the self. Um, 
at the core of all of these tensions. And it's just, if you haven't read the book, it is very long, but it is um, completely worth a read and a reread, um, in my opinion. Um, it's just, it's just incredible the way that it, it, and as I said, it, it is about race in America, and that is a huge um, subject here, which is which is central and important. And this is um, really a a um, a text that you would put on a on a pedestal when we're talking about African American literature. But it also talks about the human experience more generally, I would say, um, in a lot of different ways. So. You know, these kind of gaps, they they give the reader some freedom to fill in the blanks as well. You can start thinking about with your own fiction as we talk about some other texts. Um, it gives it kind of a space to breathe. You can almost think of it that way rather than just telling the reader, you know, exactly what's going on. There's kind of this breathing space, this pause of reflection, almost like a sisura in a, in a poem, in a line of a verse. Um, you have that kind of that breath and, you know, we, the reader are kind of cued to think when there's this gap, it's also open for interpretation. Um, it's the ambiguity allows us to see things in several different ways. So in, in the interest of this idea of nothingness and gaps, I, wrote a paper um, a few years back about The White Tiger by Aravan de Diga um, for um, CLC Web with Purdue. And I'll, I'll link it there for you. I'm just going to read a short passage to you. It's called Redefinitions of India and Individuality and Adiga's The White Tiger. Um, and it's about making something from nothing. So again, going back to that Pharmacon idea, the idea that um, sometimes this nothingness can be um, powerful. So I think it's most useful if I just read to you the opening. Aravanda Diga's novel, The White Tiger, challenges definitions of Indian identity with a narrator who comes from a nameless and birthdayless past with a written fate as a member of the lower caste. The servant rises in power by using the very nothingness he comes from as an advantage and addresses his agenda to China's premier. The narrator becomes something in not only Indian, but also global society under the symbolic pseudonym of the White Tiger, as he appeals to China and speaks with understanding of the United States and world economies. Despite a lack of formal education, he knows multiple religions and languages as well. The fact that the narrator is also a murderer is not excusable, but shows the reader that the embrasure of nothingness in India is not fully possible at this time. Therefore, Adiga is both asking Indians to veer away from their faded paths while also changing economic, political, and social policies. There must be a way for individuals within society to seek re redefinition through both lawful and ethically correct means. The concept of an empowering nothingness is an inherent concept of literary deconstruction in Jacques Derrida's Différence. Derrida's play on the French Différé meaning both to differ and to defer, allows for a link in signifying non-identity and, quote, the order of the same. Difference with an A becomes a philosophy rather than a simple word. The neologism, quote, indicates the middle voice, thereby asking the reader to allow dissonant suspensions of known truths defined by societies. Individual's free will is not just an action here, 
but a state of being and the ability to change what one's being is defined as. Non-identity becomes a form of empowerment. So of course I'm talking about Derrida in this paper as well. As you know, I love his work and it helps me to frame ideas. And you know, I get into this later in the paper. So if you're interested, you know, you can you can check out more of that part. It's it's freely available. It's an open source journal. Um, so just read a little bit more of this to help us understand the idea of the non-identity here. In the White Tiger, Adiga is first defined through non-identity by the fact that he has, quote, never been given a name, nor, quote, known his exact age. He has always been called Muna, or boy, which his teacher name claims is, quote, not a real name, and subsequently names him um, Balram, the sidekick of the god Krishna. Although there is consideration through the novel of the narrator's place in society that is dependent on his position in India's caste system, his lack of name challenges a strict fate through its potential for mutability. The teacher already challenges the notion that we are born into identities by labeling Muna with the new name of Balram and tells Balram that his own name is Krishna, therefore placing Balram as his, quote, sidekick in the classroom. The new name may be a step up from boy in the hierarchy, but a sidekick is not only below another by definition, but also at the mercy of the other's fate. Balram is an elevated status of a name with less freedom of identity. However, Balram's father seems to have no care what his son is called. Quote, if it's what he wants, then we'll call you that. He does not attempt to design Balram's fate, and we are suddenly aware that the narrator need not be caught in the need, uh, sorry, not be caught in the continuous cycle of father and son that dominates class definitions worldwide. And then I go on to talk about um, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man um, and connect this idea of invisibleness and the nameless character um, between the stories, as well as Daisiji's uh, Balzac and the Little Chinese Seamstress. Um, so in this um, novel, well, Daisiji is also a filmmaker, so he wrote the novel also to be the film that it became. And um, it takes place in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. The narrator, narrator is only briefly mentioned in Chinese as Ma and um, unused otherwise in the text. And the little seamstress also goes unnamed. And a lot of this has to do with kind of the reorganization of class structures and the suppressing of different types of people um, in China at that time. Um, and I also then go to Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, another favorite text here on the Matterhorn. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to look at Virginia Woolf um, a little bit today as well. So like I said, I'll, I'll just link that in there for you if you're you know more interested in it. Um, similarly, in some, some other texts, we have these kind of um, marginalized characters who um, are either unnamed or they were invisible and they become more visible. So in the case of The World's Wife, which is a collection of poems by Carolyn Duffy, but also a collection of um, fictions that she's created, she shares with us the wives and the women of um, famous men, either real historic men or mostly from literature and legends um, and myths, they're reimagined. Um, and I mean, I just love a lot of them. I think Mrs. Icarus is very short and kind of funny. There's this sort of dark humor that runs through the text. So um, Mrs. Icarus is, I'm not the first or the last to stand on a hillock watching the man she married prove to the world he's a total, utter, absolute grade A pillock. And I don't mean anything to all men. My husband is not like this, but it's, I think it's quite a funny um, 
short little poem reimagining um, Icarus and that story, which, I mean, Icarus has so many cool adaptations. If you don't know the Kate Tempest um, uh, sort of wrapped version, it's really great. So you can see that on YouTube. You can see Kate Tempest um, acting it out. And Anne Hathaway, uh, Shakespeare's significant other, on page 30 of the text, there's a quote from Shakespeare's will at the top. Item I give unto my wife my second best bed. So it says the bed we loved in was a spinning world of forest castles, torchlight, clifftop seas where he would dive for pearls. My lover's words were shooting stars, which fell to earth as kisses. Um, and then I just jumped to the end and it says my living laughing love. I hold him in the casket of my widow's head as he held me upon that next best bed. So just, you know, bringing her down a step with that second best bed. But there are, there's a Queen Kong, uh, sorry, Queen Kong on the next page is a great one. Mrs. Lazarus, um, also playing off of Sylvia Plath there. Um, Pygmalion's Bride, Mrs. Rip Van Winkle, Frau Freud is a, is a really great one. So um, this is a wonderful book in thinking about um characters or historical figures who had maybe been invisible in some way um, and making them more visible. So there's also, in a, in a very different way, The Go-Between is a novel by L.P. Hartley, um, sort of a classic one, but sometimes forgotten. Um, I have a really nice one with an introduction by Calm Tobin. Um, and it's it's about this character who I mean he's he's young he's a teenager but he's kind of the he's the go between he's sharing these messages um, between what ends up being these two lovers and he kind of get caught up and caught up in the story itself it's um, when all you inhabit is that kind of liminal space the question is you know what is your function really and how can you use it to your advantage to be undefined in this way maybe so you know and he he is a kid sure but he still wants to be taken seriously and taken as as somebody so i'll just read to you the short passage of his realization um of this nothingness um, and it says, for I saw, this is on 199, for I saw it was relentlessly borne in upon me that everything she had done for me had been done with an ulterior motive. She hadn't been fond of me at all. She had pretended to be fond of me so that she could unveil me into taking messages between her and Ted Burgess. It was all a put up job. As this realization sank into me, I stopped running and began to cry. I had not been so long at school that I had lost the power of crying. I cried a good deal and felt calmer for it. A sense of my whereabouts returned to me. I noticed for the first time where I was on the causeway leading to the sluice. And, you know, because he's in this sort of in-between space, he's also able to let out his emotions. Maybe in some ways he's able to be more real um, because he doesn't occupy a more defined space in, you know, in this kind of a love triangle um, or um, even in society yet because he, you know, he's, he's still at school or he's just, he's just coming from school. Um, that's a really good, really good book. Um, there's also The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Um, these are identical twins who have been separated and 
their lives have become completely different um, where they live, their families, and even so much that one of the twins, so they, these children um, were raised in a black family to start, and then when they were separated, one has been secretly passing as white. And there's a whole, this is a fairly, very recent novel, um, but there's there's a whole discourse about this notion of passing um, in America, especially because it might allow you at different times entrance into certain places, even um, before the civil rights movement. And um, even after, it might change the way that other people um, respond to you or interact with you, um, which is quite like a shocking thing to to really think about that you know if you pass for a different race you'll be treated completely differently but this is something that um Nella Larson explored in the novel called Passing in 1929 for example um and you know you can think about it also as making a kind of negation of a part of oneself in this idea of passing um and what does that mean I mean even the title itself here the vanishing half um, you know, and there's a question of which which twin is the vanishing half throughout the story as well. Um, if we just go to a classic poem for a minute to think about this idea of uh, a nobody or an invisible person and the way that it can also be positive. You know, I like to think about uh, Emily Dickinson's I'm Nobody, Who Are You? And there's a great, great film of this girl who loves a poem and shares what it means to her from the Robert Pinsky Poem Project, which I'll link in for you. It's just like a five minute video. And um, the girl is quite funny, I think. But um, it's it's this idea in Emily Dickinson's poem that you can just relax and be yourself rather than be on display all the time. You know, I think in a in a more modern context, it's about also problems with celebrity or status or maybe even a kind of career that could define you. These sort of expectations that others may have of you and how you might want to retreat into being nobody at times. So I'll just pause to read that poem for you now. I'm nobody. Who are you? I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog. To tell one's name the live-long June to an admiring bog. So it's this kind of retreat into nothingness that really brings a kind of um, solace to Emily Dickinson, the idea that you can just be exactly who you want. You know, you don't need to actually share it with anybody, which, you know, might be something that's up to debate. Um so that leads me back to A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf, which I mentioned. Now, the word nothing appears 35 times in that text, which was a lecture which she'd done, turned into also a piece of writing. And it's, you know, it's about um, women and fiction, what women need to create fiction at the time of writing this. Um, but it also becomes a story, a fictional story itself. And so the word nothing appears 35 times. Um she may, there's this angry professor who's upset with her kind of infiltration of the um, fake university. Um, and she makes the angry professor into nothing 
Um, she also says nothing is known about women before the 18th century. She also says there was an enormous body of masculine opinion to the effect that nothing could be expected of women intellectually. So Wolf, um, you know, talks about this nothingness in relation to women writers um, at the time, but she also embraces it and eventually concludes that actually being, you know, outside of or or invisible or seen as nothing in some ways um, allows for more creative freedoms. So you know, it's not it's definitely not all bad, but it's it's a concept that she's playing with here. And then she talks about um, Shakespeare as superior because of these gaps and ambiguities. And she says, for though we say that we know nothing about Shakespeare's state of mind, even as we say that, we are saying something about Shakespeare's state of mind. The reason perhaps why we know so little of Shakespeare compared with Dunn or Ben Jonson or Milton is that his grudges and spites and antipathies are hidden from us. We are not held up by some revelation which reminds us of the writer. All desire to protest, to preach, to proclaim an injury, to pay off a score, to make the world the witness of some hardship or grievance was fired out of him and consumed. Therefore, his poetry flows from him free and unimpeded. If ever a human being got his work expressed completely, it was Shakespeare. If ever a mind was incandescent, unimpeded, I thought turning again to the bookcase... It was Shakespeare's mind. And so there's this sort of protection in, um, in being unnamed and being anonymous that we can then liken to some of the characters of fiction that we've been looking at and that I'll, and that I'll mention. So also she talks about it in relation to her own consciousness. Um, she uses the word nobody 13 times in the text. She uses the word invisible a couple of times. She says here, or perhaps it is rather that nature in her most irrational mood has traced in invisible ink on the walls of the mind a premonition which these great artists confirm, a sketch which only needs to be held to the fire of genius to become visible. And she goes on to talk about War and Peace and then Jane Eyre just after. So Virginia Woolf is also using this concept of negation a lot in her fiction as well. And there's a great article um, that I'll link in for you that focuses mainly on To the Lighthouse. Um, and it talks also about her mental illness and the way that she perhaps includes this in the text. So I'll just read the abstract for you because I think it's quite helpful in thinking about um, this, this idea of absence. And it says, Wolf's um, recurrent glooms and the experience of non-being in her terms, the dark aspect of her lifelong struggle with bipolar mental illness, are reflected in her fiction through a distinct and recurrent negative vocabulary. I argue that the marked meanings, nothing, and its variants occur frequently and across a number of epistemological registers in her now canonical To the Lighthouse. Negative diction functions not simply as a syntactical element that appears to a greater or lesser extent in all discourse, literary and otherwise, but as a concentration of linguistic cues that underscore and advance the narrative's thematic concerns. What I term the poetics of negation may be understood in semantic, psychological, historical, and formal senses, not only exemplifying Wolf, Wolf's close acquaintance with negation, but further securing her semantic links to modernist preoccupations. Um, and of course, it goes into detail of To the Lighthouse, but you know you might want to look for it yourself in um, some of the rest of Wolf's work. Also, her you know wonderful short stories are a great place to start. 
So another really brilliant, thought-provoking text that came to mind um, when I was thinking about this topic uh, was Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, which is a kind of response or um, adaptation, I guess, um, of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, and, you know, this the words um, that I just mentioned also appear a lot in this text. Nothing is 37 times in the short play. Um, he uses silence 11 times. He, there's nobody. There's a lot of these words of negation um, also in the text. And a lot of this is about death and absence, as well as finding one's place in between the majestic expectations of life, which, you know, these are also themes in Hamlet, you know, thinking about you know, to be or not to be, like our, our life and its purpose and, you know, um, also death and its meaning as well. Um, one's place in kind of the kingdom and, um, you know, leaving and leaving a gap in that space or being a very visible player in that kingdom. Um, so I'll just read a short passage from this, and we have Guildenstern saying, "We only now, uh, we only know what we're told, and that's little enough. And for all we know, it isn't even true." And then the player says, "For all anyone knows, nothing is. Everything has to be taken on trust. Truth is only that which is taken to be true. It's the currency of living. There may be nothing behind it, but it doesn't make any difference so long as it is honored. One acts on assumptions. What do you assume?" And Rosencrantz says. Hamlet is not himself, outsider in. We have to glean what afflicts him. And then later, Guildenstern, tired, drained, but still on edge of impatience over the mime. No, no, not for us. Not like that. Dying is not romantic, and death is not a game, which will soon be over. Death is not anything. Death is not. It's the absence of presence, nothing more. The endless time of never coming back. A gap you can't see. And when the wind blows through it, it makes no sound. The light has gone upstage, and only Guildenstern and Rosenstein are visible. As um, Ro- sorry, Rosencrantz, Rosencrantz um, is clapping and faltering to silence. So you know this is we we have silence happening here as well, as well as the visibility of the characters disappearing in relation to this idea of death and nothingness you know there's a lot of existential questions in this play um there are you know funny moments as well there are parts that can be kind of a labyrinth of a mind um that makes us think differently um i was really lucky to see daniel radcliffe in this um play in london a few years back and I think it you know it's this is a great play to read there's also a film version which is okay um but if you get a chance to see it live a lot of this idea of the silence and the gaps and the nothingness are really at the forefront of production so um a few more unnamed or unspoken um characters are like just like invisible man are in dostoevsky's underground man Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Um, another time that we see this is in Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, which is just a really gorgeous novel that came out a couple of years ago. And there, in this text, there's an unnamed diagnosis. So um, the story also kind of jumps around um, in terms of its timeline, and it creates kind of a montage, which is really interesting that mimics 
the mind in some ways and the memory. Um, but we find out that the central character um, is diagnosed with something from a psychiatrist, but it is never named. And it's quite powerful, I think, the way that it's the way that it's not named. Um, and on the one hand, it shows that maybe that's it's not so important to the story to know the actual diagnosis. And on the other hand, it becomes even more important to the to the narrator in in her own story and what she decides to do with that information about herself. And it really becomes like a relief for her. So um, that book is is just it it's funny, it's sad, it's got um lots of ups and downs along the way and it's a kind of book where um every word every phrase has a kind of twist and turn you know you don't want to read a paragraph quickly because you might miss um something important or you might miss a joke and either way you really don't want to miss it so that's sorrow and bliss by meg mason i mean also we've got frankenstein's monster is unnamed it dehumanizes him um as the creature and the creature also in an adaptation by Ahmed Sadwi, Sadawi, sorry, called Frankenstein in Baghdad, um, has the creature as the one who has no name, even emphasizing more, I think, the unnamed creature um, and calling him that capitalized as the one who has no name. And it also plays with this idea of nothingness and truth. So I'll just read you a very short part of this on 141. Okay, so this is the beginning of chapter three. I go out at night, an hour or two after sunset. I keep my head down because of the constant crossfire. I'm the only person walking down long streets where even stray cats and dogs dare not venture. And the short interludes of silence between the bursts of gunfire, which grow more and more intense as midnight approaches, there is nothing but the sound of my footsteps. So he's aware of himself in the silence. I'm equipped with everything I might need, identity cards and documents provided to me by the enemy, so well made that they are impossible to distinguish from the real thing, and a detailed map of the best route through the residential areas, the streets and the lanes provided by the magician. The route enables me to avoid running into people I don't need to see and who don't need to see me. So he's he's making himself invisible. He's using maps to find the more um, silent and dark and invisible spaces as well. And this is the the power of that nothingness. But it also shows the the fear in the exposed areas. Um, you can also have a space in the narration. Again, I mentioned this kind of breathing space to allow for that kind of um, truth or grappling with the truth to shine through. Um, a book that does this really well is A Door Behind a Door by Yelena Moskovich. It has these estranged siblings from the Soviet Union who meet in Milwaukee, of all places. And, um, you know, it deals with a lot with um, memory and it's it's written in part of it is written sort of as a dramatic text and I think a dramatic text in any case leaves a lot of gaps because we have um either no or less narration as well to help us out with you know what's being said and we have clues that we have to kind of piece together and then there's this cold narration in a book I recently finished called Lord Jim at Home by Dina Brooke which was a re-release by Dawn Books um from I think it was about 50 years ago and you know it's it's in some ways adapting the idea of the story Lord Jim um by Joseph Conrad but it it also you know it's it's a 
it's a it's a story of of class of history of neglect by parents um with a horrific consequences and i think the coldness in the narration forces us to really create um our own ideas in that space and I think it really works because it takes away any kind of judgment of different actions and leaves the judgment to us the reader to decide what we think about these acts by the various characters and lastly just to I have to talk about Moby Dick here um the word nothing appears 116 times in the text um as does the concept of gaps and silence and negation and i think the best place we can look for this idea is in chapter 42 the whiteness of the whale which is a really um for me it's probably the most memorable chapter um and i'll read to you a little bit from the beginning and a little bit from the end of that chapter here and if you want to read the rest of it, you know, of course, this is on Gutenberg online if you don't own the text. So you can just read the couple of pages of chapter 42. And I remember again that in, in visual arts, um, that negative space, we sometimes also call white space, even if it's not actually white. Um, you know, it might be air in the case of a sculpture or it might be, um, you know, the brown wall in a painting. But the whiteness is kind of the blankness as well. So what the white whale was to Ahab has been hinted. What at times he was to me as yet remains unsaid. Aside from those more obvious considerations touching Moby Dick, which could not but occasionally awaken in any man's soul some alarm, there was another thought, or rather vague, nameless horror concerning him, which at times by its intensity completely overpowered all the rest, and yet so mystical and well-nigh ineffable was it that I almost despair of putting it in a comprehensible form. It was the whiteness of the whale that above all things appalled me. But how can I hope to explain myself here, and yet in some dim, random way explain myself I must, else all these chapters might be not. And then I jump to the end here. But not yet have we solved the incantation of this whiteness and learned why, it's appeal, why it appeals with such power to the soul, and more strange and far more portentous why, as we have seen, it is at once the most meaning symbol of spiritual things, nay, the very veil of the Christian's deity, and yet should be as it is, the intensifying agent in things the most appalling to mankind." Is it that by its indefiniteness it shadows forth the heartless voids and immensities of the universe, and thus stabs us from behind with the thought of annihilation, when beholding the white depths of the Milky Way? Or is it that as in essence the whiteness is not so much a color as the visible absence of color, and at the same time the concrete of all colors? It is for these reasons that there is such a dumb blankness, full of meaning, in a wide landscape of snows, a colorless all-color of atheism from which we shrink. And when we consider that other theory of the natural philosophers, that all other earthly hues, every stately or lovely emblazoning, the sweet tinges of sunset skies and woods, yea, and the gilded velvets of butterflies and the butterfly cheeks of young girls, all these are but subtle deceits, not actually inherent in substances, but only laid on from without, so that all deified nature absolutely paints like the harlot, 
whose allurements cover nothing but the charnel house within. And when we proceed further and consider that the mystical cosmetic which produces every one of her hues, the great principle of light, forever remains white or colorless in itself. And if operating without medium upon matter would touch all objects, even tulips and roses, with its own blank tinge. Pondering all this, the palisade universe lies before us a leper, and like willful travelers in Lapland who refuse to wear colored and coloring glasses upon their eyes, so to the wretched infidel gazes himself blind at the monumental white shroud that wraps all the prospect around him. And of all these things, the albino whale was the symbol. Wonder ye then at the fiery hunt? So I think it's hard to say more than what Herman Melville does in this passage about this idea of blankness and what it might have to do with truth and our own humanity. I just go back to this one line. Um, Is it that by its indefiniteness, it shadows forth the heartless voids and immensities of the universe and thus stabs us from behind with the thought of annihilation when beholding the white depths of the Milky Way? And, you know, just this this human thought of the eternal and the abyss and what this means to us at once um, completely frightening and overwhelming in its, in its fearsome nature. And then on the other hand, it's almost the meaning of life, this kind of awe, these kind of things that we want to discover. And, you know, Melville in this book, he's, he's got a real... Um, interesting narrative he puts together in this huge book and he explores many other ideas besides the central subject or narrative itself in that kind of negative space around it and he's also dealing with his own memories of being at sea on these ships um there are many other novels that kind of lead up to Moby Dick that he wrote to also explore um in part his own experiences although they're all created into fictions so I mean if you want to think more and ponder more on this concept just go to that chapter the whiteness of the whale and I would love to hear what kind of epiphanies you have after reading it either for the first time or reading it again spaces and places This is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. So today, as I mentioned, we're talking about Vienna on spaces and places. Um, Vienna is also a place that I lived um, for four years, and I use it as a place of memory in this um, in this novel that I'm sharing with you now that's mostly based in Hong Kong. Um, and I think it's interesting to kind of contain um, layers of place also within um, kind of stories within stories um, embedded in a text. And, you know, in this case, it's a memory. And, you know, by creating those um those juxtapositions we have we have that kind of liminal space that's again created we also have um, traces of other places and comparisons that kind of enter then the place where most of the story takes place so um you know and there there's some points of comparison um 
points of comparison as well. And I think just, you know, having this other, this other place that's, that's mentioned creates another layer of the fiction. There's also a layer created through the memory of the character and what that has to do with her kind of current experience. If we think of the story as the current timeline, um, it also makes it less trustworthy for the reader because we're really aware that, um, you know, this is a memory. It's constructed as a fiction within a fiction. And so, you know, if we're dependent on memory um, from this protagonist and the way that she responds to it and the way that she acts um, based on her current situation, we we understand that kind of lack of trust that can come from these spaces. So Vienna is a beautiful place. It's also a very strange place. And um, I'll go into why. I think you'll see the reason that I sent my latest manuscript, which I am figuring out exactly what I want to do with at this moment, um, but that I set a psychological thriller in Vienna. Um, and the one of those reasons is that it's got a really interesting history, which I think gives it a different feel even now. And even if you're an outsider to the city, um, like I felt that I remained in those four years, even though I met so many wonderful Viennese as well. And um, some people are not aware of the history of Vienna that after World War II for, for 10 years, um, Austria was divided into four zones by the Allied forces, and Vienna itself was similarly subdivided. So within the city, you had these kind of checks between the um, the the area controlled by the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, the United States, and France, and then there was also the Allied Control Council at the middle. So there were all these kind of borders and barriers in the city that you would have to to cross over. You would you know need your papers and you'd need to talk to military to do it. Um, you know, with the rise of the Cold War as well, um, with the Soviet Union there, you know, you can imagine that that created a lot of tensions as well. Um, additionally, you know, even following this, the the UN was also um, set up in Vienna and, you know, partly because of this, but also because it was kind of this gateway between East and West. And you can say that in kind of a bigger sense or East and West Europe. Um, there, so ideologically speaking or geographically speaking, either way, um, there was and still currently are a lot of spies there. And I have heard referenced by reputable people who work for government agencies that they're the most spies in the world are still currently in Vienna, which really um, shocked me and thought, well, what better place to put a spy story? But I think it also... Um, it also you can you can feel that kind of tension in the streets, that kind of distrust, and even if it's not um, explicit or maybe people aren't even aware of it, I think that kind of generational distrust is part of what you feel um, in Vienna. You know, and despite its its beauty and despite the the life that comes out in the summer by the river, and you know, despite all the wonderful things about it, that's still a part of the subtext. And there's this kind of you know traumatic past of world war ii and all the time that hitler spent um 
uh, at the Hofburg Palace, for example, um, that when you see it, you see this beauty, and then you also have a tracing of this terrible history at the same time. So, you know, you can, even if we don't look at all of that explicitly when we when we mention the place these can kind of be used as almost ghostly um images of the place that we are talking about you know and and even the 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 buildings themselves so you know i mentioned the the palace um there's a not in this text but in my other one i also have the character looks at this there's this sort of overhanging building near the um, near the UN and some other, um, agencies, um, a lot of them dealing, dealing with like nuclear power, for example. Um, and the U S built this building supposedly to be able to spy on, (laughs) to spy on other people. I'm not sure if it's necessary now to have your building overhanging, but I think at one time it would probably be easier to, um, to listen in with your equipment in that way. So um, I don't know all the details of that and some of it's hearsay, but it creates a different kind of place. And, you know, if you, if you think about the comparisons um, implicitly between places with Hong Kong, um, a very different kind of city from Vienna, very much more, um, Vienna is much more traditional in the way that it looks, also in, I would say, the culture Hong Kong is perhaps more about invention and reinvention, um, even though they've both been kind of occupied in this way. And Hong Kong has been occupied in different ways for a very long time, you know, first by the British and by the Japanese during World War II, then again by the British, and then um, you could say by the Chinese, depending on the way that you look at it, right? So, um, and I know a lot of Hong Kongers see it that way. And Hong Kong has also a lot of these kind of ideological east-west tensions that it embodies. Um, You know, in talking about invisibility today, you know, we can go back to what Akbar Abbas was saying about Hong Kong culture and that, you know, we just need to look to make the invisible visible. And, you know, perhaps this is true in some of the culture of um, Vienna as well. What is more obvious is like the big opera house, um, the huge parks, the palaces, the big museums, wonderful museums, and you know the traditional art. Um, so you have to really look more closely to find the kind of new iterations of of culture and where these are coming from. And you know Vienna is actually a very international city, but you wouldn't always know it looking around. And so looking for that um, internationalism as well isn't always isn't always obvious. Um, so if I decide to do something with uh, that other text here on the Matterhorn, then I'll give you a lot more of Vienna at that time. Um, I'd love to hear about your experiences in Vienna as well. Um, and like I said, I'm going to take a little break now, but I'll come back to you in a couple weeks um, with more ideas as well as what's going on next. Um, and I just hope that you're having a really nice um winter or if you're in the southern hemisphere um summer and you know my um some of my extended family lives in New Zealand and I know they'll be barbecuing while we are looking to hit the ski slopes if we can get enough snow so um I look forward to bringing you that in a couple weeks and stay tuned if you're in the chat with us if you're a paid subscriber um because we'll be talking about all this as well and I would love to hear your ideas As always, I'll bring you a five-minute version of today's topic to help you get creative, and let's do this on Thursday. 
If you're not on my Substack page, please sign up for a free subscription to get access to all the links, multimedia, and a transcript, as well as to join the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Matterhorn today. 